The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. morning. It's so nice to be back. And when I came in on Thursday, I got out of the car and it looked so beautiful. I took a walk and many of you have been working really hard on the grounds and it really is quite remarkable. Just those of you who don't come often or haven't been able to work outside realize what an extraordinary gift it is to come here and feel the oasis of serenity and the care and concern that is given to every inch of this six-acre property. And this care and concern, whether it's cleaning inside or doing various gardening projects and cleanup projects, is what we mean by Zen practice. Some people think it has to do with sitting on a cushion very still That is certainly what we call Zazen, sitting Zen. But Zazen is the core, we may say the core or the essence of our Zen activity. Stillness within activity allows our activity to be nothing but the expression of awakened mind, which after all, is another way of saying Zen. Awakened mind, functioning, caring for our environment, understanding what is needed when we walk by what might be a plant that's too dry or weeds that are choking a newly planted tree and just The other day, some of you put in the blueberry bushes that were donated by the family of our dear and recently departed Asian, Phyllis Berman. So it took us a while to come up with the right spot, but they seem to be very happy and very tasty as I tried them this morning. And tonight we will have Dharma study, looking together at passages from the Rinzai book of Rinzai, Rinzai Roku. And this is another way of what do we understand as Zen in our lives. It's not just words written by or spoken by 
a teacher long ago. It's really our own lives that we will be examining using the teachings of Master Rinzai. So you're all welcome to come tonight at 7. And then Thursday is Mandala Day, and we are starting our summer session that evening at 7 p.m. We will be gathering for the formal tea, Sozare, for session. And then after uh, various aspects of that opening service, we will have Zazen, Kinhin, and then we'll have Mandala Day chanting and celebration. So even if you can't come for the three days of summer session, please come Thursday night and experience the joy of our spiritual interrelationship and gratitude to those teachers who brought Zen practice to the West and who are our ancestors. I was at Daibusatsu, the monastery with which we are associated, for about two weeks. We had really wonderful anniversary session. It was a real turning point for my being abbot there and teaching there because for a number of months, Eido Roshi's students who wanted to continue with him were writing letters imploring him not to completely retire or to come back in some limited way to guide their practice. And we had been sitting together, these students and I, at various sessions, but they felt that they could not come to Doksan to private interview with me because they were still in some way Edo Roshi's students. And so we were experiencing a kind of disunity within the Zen Study Society Sangha. A very difficult thing when we were just really working so hard to find strength and harmony and building up what had been going through a very difficult time. So after really deep reflection, Ada Roshi made the announcement that you, most of you know, came up to Daibosatsu and spoke and said, please, for the sake of the Dharma, for the harmony of the Sangha, please let me go. Please take Shinge Roshi, myself, as your teacher. And so that happened the day that we began session. Morning or afternoon? I don't remember. Anyway, afternoon, just a few hours before session started. And from that point on, there was really a terrific shift. So I felt very blessed to have students who had been practicing for many, many years. And we began a Doksan relationship. And the sense of wholeness during that session was really 
palpable, really deep. And the ability to work together with some of these wonderful students was uh, really rich for us all. So that is the beginning of, I feel, very strong new direction for Daibosatsu and for all of us who are able to go there and bring the wonderful spirit of Hoenji to share that and be inspired by and replenished by, rejuvenated by, restored by the extraordinary experience of practicing at this beautiful monastery in the Catskill Mountains. This is beautiful here. We have an urban zendo that feels like an amazing oasis. But as those of you know who have visited Daibosatsu or attended session there, that place, no matter what season, is absolutely enchantingly beautiful. And especially now, the lake, the birds, the amazing variety of plantings and wilderness and animals, fish, lots of trout jumping or swimming around you when you're in the lake, and the full moon the last night I was there, casting its beacon exactly opposite us over the ridge, as though inviting us up. The Tuesday before I came back, we had a brush workshop with Kaz Tanahashi, whom some of you know from his visits here or from traveling with him in Japan when we had our two trips. And it was really a wonderful experiment that I was able to bring him there. I know here it's very easy for us to join in his beautifully relaxed and open sensibility. But to bring him to the monastery, which some people may have experienced as a rather constrained and severe place, where we work very hard, sit very hard, where there's an uncompromising rigor to the practice. To bring him there was, in a way, a risk on my part. But he wanted to come, 
just to visit and was gracious enough to say, yes, I'll do a workshop for you. And we started out in the morning with a few people from Hoenji and a few from New York City and the residents. So about 13 of us. And from the very beginning character that we worked on, which was the kanji for human, very simple, just two strokes. Yes, very simple. Simplest and yet so difficult. He right away got everyone to understand how important it is to smile while you're doing this intensive brushwork. Without smile, your line is going to be constrained, congested, congealed, constipated, all those C-O-N works, words. And just the simplest thing, like uh, he calls it a dewdrop. Most calligraphers call it a teardrop, where you have the brush and you make a small, like, shape of a drop, where you might start a line and then you move from that little mark to another direction, or where you're going through a line and then you stop before you change directions. And there's a a quality of a pause, a rest, but it has a shape. That's really the hardest thing, to feel that that's happening, that it's a pause and also that it's a moment of um, totally pure attentiveness and the the moment that you are moving from, say, your out-breath to the next breath in, or this moment, just as it becomes the next moment. And then teaching us, of course, how to hold the brush and how to feel the flexibility and the, the movement in the brush as a part of our own being. To have the feeling of relaxation and yet the intensity of just being that mark, that stroke. We were copying some of the most renowned Chinese kanji, Chinese characters of all time, classical characters. So really amazingly beautiful characters that he had assembled for us on worksheets. And of course it was uh, somewhat intimidating to try to copy them, but nonetheless really wonderful experience in trying to connect with the mind of the calligrapher. And some were informal, kanji formal characters, some were semi-cursive, Some were cursive, almost unreadable, like the calligraphies by Eido Roshi that we have here. So cursive characters are are really where you just sense the energy and the intensity of the mind of the person who 
wrote them as well as what they mean, or more than what they mean. So all things are revealed when you do calligraphy, when you do brushwork. And there we were, kind of in between this realm of complete and utter enjoyment, relaxation, happiness, smiling, and also so focused, so intent upon understanding how that brushstroke led to that brushstroke and where that dewdrop led to that change and where the brush lifts off and where it comes back down again. And what seemed like very simple matter became so rich psychologically, spiritually, not just physically. Someone said, I learned so much about myself how I had no idea how uptight I was. And I had no idea how worried I was about looking good. So by the afternoon, Kaz was giving us large sheets of paper and giving us his big brushes, where this is about the size of the brush head, where it connects to the shaft. It's about that big around, that long. And so we were encouraged to basically drop all the rules now that we had experienced what it was like to follow them or make every effort to understand them. Now just be that character. And that was really fun. I have, I brought my... uh, a couple of mine with me if you want to see them. They're in the meeting room. I'll show you later. But all things were revealed within that that experience of the brushwork. And very often when I go to Daibosatsu, people will ask me, how is Hoenji? And I say, in my mind, I'm not so rude as to say it out loud. I say, I don't know. I'm here. I was reading Reflections on a Mountain Lake by Tenzin Palmo, the Tibetan nun. She's actually born in England, who spent 12 years in a cave. The book Cave in the Snow by Vicki McKenzie was written about her. And she was asked a question about her more recent life The question was, did you find it difficult to adjust when you went to Italy after spending so long in retreat? And she said, I have the kind of mind that wherever I am, that's where I am. And so when I landed in Italy, that's where I was. I hardly ever think of Lahul these days, where her practice in Tibet. It's only now that I'm talking to you that I think about it. Now that I'm in America, I'm not thinking about Europe. Unless people ask about Assisi, then I start thinking about Assisi. But normally, I don't think about Assisi at all. In my mind, wherever I am is where I am. Therefore, if I'm by myself, that's fine. If I'm with people, that's fine too. It's what's happening. 
I so resonate with this. I get lots of questions. Well, how is it there? How is it here? And doing that brushwork, it was exactly, you could be nowhere but where you were. You couldn't think, oh, I should be like this great Chinese master who lived in whatever year, or uh, anything else that you brought to it was just extraneous. And that's our practice, just to let go of everything extraneous. This is it. So very often I'm in a funny situation in my own zazen because especially on a day when I'm giving a talk, I think, well, what would be helpful for people? What insight that I have might be put in such a way that others might gain some, something positive or might be encouraged to let go of something that is uh, perhaps using another C-O-N word, you know, congealed in their lives. But what is, what, what is happening when I'm sitting is I start feeling that my own brain is getting congested with trying to formulate these things for you. And I immediately feel that, and I say, not necessary, just not necessary. And just, just the sound that we are embraced by. These summer insects, the chorus just started recently, right? Up until this time, we've heard birds, we've heard cars and trucks and sirens, but the insect chorus of late summer is really the continuo. You know what that is in music? A continuo? How many of you are familiar with Indian sitar music? Hmm something you have to look forward to. There is the sitar, which is carrying the melody. There is the tambur, the drum, which is holding the rhythm. And then there's the instrument that is a kind of ongoing presence that creates a kind of background hum like these insects, and in Western music as well, in early music. Hmm? Can you tell us about the continuo? So this instrument that forms this ongoing, not exactly background, but it's neither the melody nor the rhythm, and yet it is embracing whatever is going on in the music in a way that brings our attention to the notes themselves. So you might think even your own thoughts can be a continuum, not to be resisted, not to be hooked by, just this ongoing nature of flowing thinking that when you allow that 
ongoing flowing thinking to just be is no longer intrusive. Just like the insects. We don't sit here thinking, let's see, how many insects are making that sound? Or maybe some of you think, what are those insects? I don't know. What are those insects? Cicadas. Sometimes tree frogs we get. Sometimes katydids. So during the day, we don't have to identify them or take them apart or figure out anything about them, right? We don't really feel compelled to latch on to the continual of the insect chorus. And yet it really seems to enhance our awareness, doesn't it? Just to be one with this moment. The breeze is like that. You can see out the windows how the leaves are just so gently, continually moving. Forming their own continual visually for us. Why don't we feel so held in the rapturous nature of the present? Why is it that it seems to just pass us by? Do you ever feel that way? Like someone says something about it, and then it's like, oh, oh yeah, oh, right. Where was I? Where were you? Do you remember? It's so ludicrous. Wherever you were is no longer of any consequence, right? These thoughts that grab us when we let them go back into the continual, no problem. So we've been continuing to read the places that scare you in morning meeting at Daibosatsu. This is such a wonderful book that I read from earlier um, in one of my Sunday talks here, probably about a month ago, Pema Children's book, The Places That Scare You, subtitled, A Guide to Fearlessness in Difficult Times. I wonder if there has ever been a time that isn't difficult. And when we're really just sitting, is there a time that's difficult? So I want to read to you a little bit. What we need to do with our practice 
is to extend a feeling of loving kindness to ourselves. And this is probably the hardest thing. All of the thoughts that hook us tend to be thoughts of how we've failed in some way. Is that true for you? How we've done something that we wish we could undo or how we've not really been there for someone we care about or how we've spoken in ways that we wish we hadn't or in one way or another have experienced how our negative habits have just immediately come in and taken over again, even though we've observed them as negative conditioning in the past. They seem to be so at hand, even before we notice. Those are the hooks. So Pema Chodron says, for an aspiring bodhisattva, that's what we are, Aspiring bodhisattvas. Aspiration is so important for our practice. Of course, respiration is probably most important. But aspiration, we are aspiring bodhisattvas, aspiring to be vessels of Dharma. Why are we here in this human human form? Without that aspiration, maybe I should have given a little bit more attention to my thought processes while I was sitting so I could complete my own sentence. But anyway, maybe it's best not to. Let you complete it, right? Best kind of teaching. Anyway, she says, for an aspiring bodhisattva, the essential practice is to cultivate maitri, this loving-kindness mind, M-A-I-T-R-I, Tibetan word. In the Shambhala teachings, this is called placing our fearful mind in the cradle of loving-kindness. Now, I would wager that every single one of us is familiar with fearful mind. But we may not see it as fearful mind because the way it often manifests is not obviously as fearful mind. How does it more often manifest? Anger. Anger. Evaluation. Evaluation. Hmm? Negative thinking. Anything else? Second guessing. guessing. So that fearful mind finds various subterfuges, various ways of expressing itself that we get caught up in and we forget that what's at the bottom of it is fear. She says, in cultivating loving-kindness, we train first 
to be honest, loving, and compassionate toward ourselves. Rather than nurturing self-denigration, I'm no good, I'll never be any good, this is a waste, I don't know why I'm even here, I'll never be a bodhisattva. You know, that kind of thinking. Rather than nurturing self-denigration, we begin to cultivate a clear-seeing kindness. Sometimes we feel good and strong. Sometimes we feel inadequate and weak. But like mother love, Maitri is unconditional. No matter how we feel, we can aspire to be happy. This is not some temporary happiness that she's talking about. We can aspire to find true happiness. No matter where we are, no matter what our circumstances may be. To move from aggression to unconditional loving-kindness can seem like a daunting task, she says. But we start with what's familiar. We touch in with our gratitude or appreciation, our current ability to feel goodwill. In a very non-theoretical way, we contact the soft spot of bodhicitta whether we find it in the tenderness of feeling love or the vulnerability of feeling lonely is immaterial. If we look for that soft, unguarded place, we can always find it. This is such a helpful thing, isn't it? To find it, whether we're feeling able to love or not, is immaterial. Somewhere, if we're honest, there's a vulnerable spot inside, right? That unguarded place, we find it. This goes against all our conditioning, doesn't it? All our conditioning that we've lived with so dysfunctionally all our lives is to guard what's vulnerable. Not to let anyone see our fear. Especially for you guys to grow up in this society and be able to shy away from aggression without feeling like they're going to consider you a wimp. Must be very difficult. How many of you have experienced that not being able to participate in aggression and yet at the same time not being able to show your vulnerability, feeling as though everything you've ever learned has impelled you, compelled you to put up a strong defense Hmm? Yeah. And it feels so wrong so much of the time. It feels like it's not you. Who is that person hiding behind all that? That's what we're here to find out. 
She says, underneath the defensiveness is the broken-hearted, unshielded quality of bodhicitta. Now we think bodhicitta, enlightened heart and mind. Wow, that sounds good, doesn't it? I want to go there. But what if we have to go there by letting go of our defensiveness? And what if what we find is broken-hearted, unshielded? Do we still want to go there? What if we cry when we get there? Well, that's why you should come to session. Find that out. Crying is okay. Crying is essential. We let it go. Let go of all that defensiveness, that protection against the discomfort. And she says, that we close down is not a problem. In fact, to become aware of when we do so is an important part of the training. The first step in cultivating loving kindness is to see when we are erecting barriers between ourselves and others. This compassionate recognition is essential. unless we understand in a non-judgmental way that we are hardening our hearts, there is no possibility of dissolving that armor. Maybe that's why we haven't been able to dissolve the armor. Right? Because we can't understand in a non-judgmental way. If we can't stop judging, we can't dissolve the armor that we've put up because what have we judged ourselves to be? Hopeless. Hopeless? What else? Hmm? What have we judged ourselves to be? Less Less than. Not deserving. Hmm? Not good enough. That's probably it in a nutshell. Somehow we've accepted others. What? Opinions of us? Or societies or parents or teachers or whatever. It's been drilled into us. Somehow we've accepted that as who we are. No matter what we do, we'll never be worthy. So we have to feel this. We can't close down against it. We have to become aware of when we start closing down. Hard to do, right? But to develop, this is what we do when we're practicing, to develop the ability to breathe into whatever we are experiencing in this very moment. Honestly, with this very breath, nothing erected between our breath and our awareness of where we may feel pain. No shield, no armor to open to it. Hardest thing 
But no one ever said this is an easy practice. But if we don't do it, it becomes the most difficult practice. If we don't open to that which is fearful, then what we're doing is just sitting closed down. When we sit closed down, what do we notice then? Pain, irritation, anger, preference of all kinds. Well, I wouldn't be feeling this bad if they would just, you know, whatever. It's their fault. They can be anyone. It can be the jishas, it can be the jikijitsu, it can be the parents, it can be the people you work with. It doesn't matter. We just project, project, project. Forgetting that underneath that projection is where we need to be. This tender place. Non-judgmental. To find this non-judgmental mind is so hard. That this is what we do when we sit down and just breathe. We let that judgmental mind, that harsh mind, just dissolve with each exhalation. It's okay. It's okay to tell yourself it's okay to be the mother, the compassionate mother that brings this loving kindness to your life. That is essential. And every time we chant together the great vows, remember, is about this very matter to be able to feel loving kindness for yourself. Then you will know all beings are being blessed by this. There is no separation between self and other. When you can truly open truly feel this non-judgmental mind manifesting, then every being throughout the universe is saying, thank you. Hi. Hi.